Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fempreneur Pathfinder podcast. I have come across a beautiful story and it's by an author called Jane Hardwick Collins and she's written her story, A Woman Manifesto, and it covers the history of she and the history of the goddess and a history of each and every woman. I thought I'd share that um, as an episode because it's such a beautiful story to listen to but it also is a very sad story. I hope you enjoy it. It is quite a deep dive and quite a long one but she's written it beautifully and summarized everything we have been through. So let's begin. One day, any day, anywhere, a group of women gathered Daughters, maidens, mothers, mages, crones, sisters, and all. They gathered to explore the stories of their distant past as women. They gathered to reclaim feminine power through reconnection with the woman's mysteries. They sat on the earth in a circle beneath a structure called Moon Lodge. The sisters sat positioned around the circle dependent on their current position in their life and monthly fertility cycle. They sat with the chosen talisman or symbol marking their position, their placement of the wheel of life. The woman felt connected to all things. I sat in the northwest of our circle, about to bleed. My symbol, a cup of red wine, full to the brim, balanced on the earth, almost overflowing, bursting at the seams, just how I felt. So reclaiming feminine power through reconnection with the woman's mysteries. Reclaiming implies something has been taken away from us. Reconnection implies that we have actually lost connection with something. Woman's mysteries, what are they? I want to tell you a story. It's actually a combination of his story and her story. History is the story that is written by the victors and supports their actions. The her story is a story that when I heard it, answered a lot of my unanswered and even unasked questions. Knowing this her story helped me understand a lot about the things, about how our culture works and what is behind the attitudes and beliefs that we share. I'm going to now give you a big sweep of our her story taking us back in time to the matriarchy, a time of great respect for Mother Nature, and then the journey of the last 3,000 years, and that was wiped out by the patriarchal culture in which we now live. 40,000 years ago, just after the last Ice Age, there's evidence that people worshipped a female deity, personified in the symbolism of the goddess. There are cave paintings dating back to 35,000 BC, depicting the goddess bearing her wondrous vulva. In prehistoric caves of southern Europe, there are descriptive carvings of the vulva, thought to be objects of worship. Ice Age people honored the goddess image in their sacred art, sculpting her image in clay and carving her out of bone, rock and ivory. These goddess figures emphasize the breasts, belly and the vulva. Over the last hundred years, archaeologists have unearthed thousands of these figurines across Europe and the East. 
During these ancient times, the people perceived the goddess as an organizing principle of the universe, who embodied all the forces of life, death, and rebirth. Her dominion encompassed not only the human world, but also the plant and animal realms, the earth, the heavens, the seasonal and sky cycles. The goddess was the life force that animated all of existence. These beliefs became the foundation for the worship of the great goddess of Neolithic times, which began around 9000 BC. At this time, the nomadic cultures settled the first permanent villages in the Fertile Crescent bordering the Mediterranean Sea. They developed a complex cosmic belief system that focused on the worship of the Triple Moon Goddess as giver of life, wielder of death and regeneratrix. This Neolithic Goddess embraced a constant and periodic renewal of life in which death was not separate from life. This religion and way of life displayed a deep respect for the cycles of women. The male principle was honoured as the god who was the sun, the lover and the consort of the goddess. Together they participated in the rites of birth, death and renewal. The great goddess appeared in many different cultures throughout the ancient world. She was the goddess of many faces, and many names. In the East, Inanna, Tiamat, Ishtar, Astarte. In Egypt, Isis, Hathor, Neith, Maat. In Greece, Demeter, Hera, Artemis, Aphrodite. In the Far East, Shakti, Adati. In India, Durga, in Tibet, Tara, in China and Japan, Kuan Yin. The goddess was inherent in all of nature. She was nature. The people built shrines in her honor and interact with her at springs, groves, caves, mountain peaks, hills, and wells. In societies where she was worshiped, women held exalted roles as priestesses, leaders, healers, midwives and diviners. The people were connected to nature, they were part of it. Their relationship and connection with the sun and the moon was clear and obvious. They knew that the phases of the moon resonated with the woman's menstrual cycle and the moon played a big role in the myth, religion and symbolism of the times. The ancients saw the moon display the ebb and flow of birth, life and death, and saw this cycle in everything else around them. The energy of each phase of the moon was recognized and worked with. Menstrual blood was known for its magical qualities and was used in fertility rites. Sexual energy was sacred and celebrated as sensual, pleasure-giving, erotic and healing. The art artifacts and early writings of these times document that the people were peaceful agriculturalists living harmoniously in matrilineal partnership societies. The matrilineal clan system was followed almost everywhere. Inheritance was passed from the mother rather than the father, probably because in prehistoric times the obvious relationship between mother and child was the only one recognized. 
it was a primitive belief that the life magic inherent in woman would make plants grow and so it was the thing for woman to do, grow plants. Property was the possession of women because they were the first to farm the land thereby establishing ownership of it. In Egypt property was passed from mother to daughter. On the British Isles matrilineal inheritance continued into the 9th century. In the later Roman Empire husbands had no claim of their wife's land or possessions if she spent three consecutive nights away from the home each year. A pre-Islamic Arab woman divorced her husband by shutting him out of the home for three consecutive nights. In Greece, a parcel of land was called a tenemos, land belonging to the woman, to the moon. Chieftains ruled only through marriage with the resident matriarch. American Indians had matrilogical marriage and matrilineal ownership of the land was customary amongst many of the different tribes. Women were the mistresses of the soil. Women were the great power in the clans and the original nomination of the chiefs always rested with them, as did the decision to go to war or not. When the Iroquois conveyed land to the US government, the documents had to be marked by their women because in their tribes, the mark of the man had no validity. In Africa, women owned the land and it was passed down to their daughters or their brother's daughters. Matrimony used to mean inheritance of property in the maternal line. The word later became synonymous with marriage because marriage was the only way for men to gain control of property. Around 3000 BC the goddess cultures began to decline. It was the time of the bronze and iron ages. Waves of nomadic Indo-European tribes from Northern Europe and Central Asia descended into Western Europe, the Near East and India. They were nomadic warlike people who rode horses and fought with bronze weapons. They worshipped a father god who ruled from the heavens above and yielded bolts of lightning. Their enemies were the people of the mother goddess and they invaded, conquered and destroyed the indigenous goddess cultures. They raped and slaughtered them. Their homes were pillaged and burned and their values and beliefs suppressed. Women were enslaved, exploited and exiled. Women were stripped of their positions of political authority and decision-making. Taken from leadership roles and the role of the priestess was given no authority. Women were disempowered when expressing their sexuality intelligent and self-sufficiency. Archaeological evidence depicts a large time destruction of the Neolithic cultures of Europe and the Near East with invasions and natural catastrophes. The patriarchal tribes rose quickly to power and imposed their ideologies on the people they conquered. Priestesses of the goddess were forced to marry the leaders of the patriarchal tribes to destroy the lineage through the mother line. The priestesses who refused to marry were isolated into enforced celibacy. They became the nuns. Patriarchal religion everywhere changed ancient systems of matrilineal inheritance to put property in the hands of men. The early centuries of the Christian conquest of Europe were largely occupied 
with acquisitions of lands from the pagan women. The aim of European Christianity was acquisitions of property, which meant overturning the pagan systems of matrilineal inheritance. By forcible seizure and warfare, the church managed to acquire a third of the properties on the continent by the early Middle Ages, up to 1200 AD. In some parts of Europe, women were still listed as the landowners, and men identified themselves by their mother's clan's names. The legal and ecclesiastic war on female property ownership continued century after century until by the end of the 19th century women could not administer their own property if they had some, nor make a will disposing of it without their husband's consent. As late as 1930 in France, women were forbidden to do any business with a bank, not even a small deposit without their husband's permission. Until the 10th century, priests married to gain property, claiming that without their wives, they would succumb to hunger and nakedness. Church laws revised the system, and from 1031 to 1051 by papal degree, priests were ordered to abandon their wives and sell off their children to slavery. The property and monies acquired by the priests became, on their death, property of the church. The priests became a privileged class. They were rich, owned lots of property and were resented. Monasteries made themselves into wine shops and gambling houses. Nunneries were private whorehouses for the clergy and priests used confessionals to seduce female parishioners. People who spoke out against the practice were burned. Would-be reformers would be silenced. Splinter groups were named as heretics and exterminated. One of the centres of the Franciscan splinter group called Fraticelli, who spoke out about the Pope and the practices of the Church, was levelled by order of the Pope and all the residents were slain. The Church built their places of worship on top of goddess shrines. They changed the stories from the Divine Feminine to the Divine Masculine. The goddess was distorted from the image of compassionate mother, the source and sustainer of all life, into a symbol associated with the forces of darkness, evil and death. Women who were the earthly manifestations of the goddess were considered impure, evil and guilty of original sin. Women became the property of their fathers and husbands. Women who had sexual relationships outside the patriarchal monogamous contract threatened the certainty of the patriarchal bloodline transmission and were ostracized and killed as whores and harlots. Their illegitimate children were deprived of all legal rights and social acceptance. In classical Greece, hailed as the birthplace of democracy, women were deprived of their citizenship, of their right to vote, and the passing of their name to their children. Ideal love was seen as the love between two men, especially an older and a younger man. Women were considered unworthy of meaningful emotional and intellectual relationships. Their only function was to bear legitimate children who could inherit the paternal property rights. The early Roman Christians suppressed all information that did not originate from the church. They closed down ancient Greek academies and burned the books of the great classical poets, philosophers and scholars. The eternal flame of the Vestal Virgins in Rome was extinguished 
the great initiatory temple of Eleusis in Greece was smashed and the rites prohibited. In the 5th century, the great library of Alexandria in Egypt was burnt down, destroying the last records of the wisdom of the ancients. In the 5th century, the concept of reincarnation and renewal was outlawed. The folk customs originating from the matrilineal cultures of relating to the natural world and ritually celebrating the change of the season was branded as witchcraft. All the old deities were denounced as heathen idols and the one supreme father god ruled. The three-faced goddess teachings of birth, death and renewal, the maiden, mother and crown, was replaced by the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost Trinity. The only aspects of the feminine that were retained were the Virgin and the Mother, preferably at one. The crown or the dark goddess aspect of the triple goddess, the one who brings death and then rebirth that aligned with the dark face of the lunation cycle and all of that realm such as old age, the dark and death, was completely denied and left out of the religious teachings. Instead, the Church offered salvation and ascension to heaven in return for complete allegiance and devotion to the Church. With the dark aspect of the cycle denied, it became despised and woman of all things feminine suffered. The feminine became distorted and as everyone has the feminine aspect of themselves as very real parts of their makeup, everyone suffered. When aspects aren't expressed, they become distorted and then these become our inner demons, our complexes, our neuroses, our compulsions and our obsessions and may burst forth as vulnerable times, as they did and have and do. This happens not just personally, but culturally and can be seen as the basis for the misogynist beliefs, attitudes and practices of the patriarchal cultures. Matriarchy and worship of the goddess were pushed into dark prehistory and the realm of fanciful legend. Remnants of the matriarchal teachings can be found in the mystery schools of the cults of Demeter in Greece, Isis in Egypt, Kali in India, Sibele in Asia Minor and the witches and fairies of old Europe. The church invested a lot in changing the way people thought, but it didn't always work. The public disgust in the church's greed for wealth grew, as did a suspicion that the myth of the Garden of Eden, original sin, heaven and hell, the virgin birth, etc. were untrue. The church sought to keep the populace in ignorance, but people were seeing through it. Their effort to hold the wandering attention of the people was seen in the 12th century passion to build huge cathedrals on the sites of goddess shrines. Then, from the 12th century until the 7th century, came the Inquisition. A 500-year reign of organized terrorism organized by the Roman Catholic Church. It is said that the Inquisition was invented primarily to force public acceptance of a church that the public didn't want, to win the war between the church and the disillusioned public, to eliminate all those who continue to remember, practice, and pass on the information of the old religion. It was the most elaborate extortion record ever devised to ensure power and built the church's wealth. The purpose was to rid the population of heretics, 
those who didn't go along with the church's doctrine. People were arrested and their property was instantly confiscated. Accused persons were also expected to pay for their imprisonment and the costs of their torture. They were expected to pay for their food, so those without money died. Sometimes, rarely, if someone was acquitted, they were held in jail until they paid for the expenses of their imprisonment. Property was seized from the dead, taken away from legal heirs, and if someone committed suicide before the torturers got to him or her, their property was taken by the church. The Inquisition established a law of property seizure for suicide that stayed in rule for most of European countries and England until 1870. Once a heretic was arrested, all his debts were cancelled, his property seized by the church and his or her family left destitute. Nobody dared to help others for fear of falling under suspicion of hearsay. No creditor or purchaser could be sure of whether their transaction would be honoured. The entire financial network of European society was strained by its religious masters. Heavy fines were also imposed in cases where people were overheard saying things verging on hearsay, and there was an exchange of punishment of the body for punishment of the purse. Everyone who opposed the system was at once excommunicated for a year and then handed over to the secular arm for burning without trial. No one was acquitted. The trials were a mockery. The accused had no lawyer. Evidence was accepted from witnesses who could not legally testify in any other kind of trial, such as condemned criminals or heretics or children as young as two. They valued child witnesses because at their tender age they could easily be persuaded or forced to inform. Torture was used, a spiked iron press that crushed the legs, binding and wrecking, branding, rape. They attacked women's breasts and genitals with pincers, pliers and red-hot irons. Sexual abuse was common in the prisons. Girls from nine and a half and boys from ten and a half were prosecuted and tortured. Torturers said their victims were laughing when their faces were contorted with pain, sleeping when they fainted, and having been slain by the devil or committed suicide when they died under torture. Finally, if they survived the torture, they were burned alive in the presence of the village. Often the hair and beards of the accused would be set alight by the spectators as they waited for their turn on the stake. All the community had to do was watch the burnings, otherwise they would be suspected of hearsay and arrested themselves. They also had to report witches to the church if they did not, they too were convicted. The people killed as witches were the village healers the midwives, the diviners, charmers, jugglers and wizards and the folk commonly called wise women and wise men. They were the woman and man who spoke out about the church. Often the witch's only crime was to be a woman. Over the centuries the charge of witchcraft came to cover a multitude of sins ranging from political subversion and religious hearsay to lewdness and blasphemy. Written in 1484 by Reverends Kramer and Springer, the beloved sons of Pope Innocent, was the Malleus Maleficarum, the hammer of the witches. 
It was the unquestioned European authority on how to conduct a witch hunt. And for three centuries, the sadistic books sat on the bench of every judge and every witch hunter. The victims over that five and a half centuries were countless. Some references go as high as nine million. The officially recorded burnings were just the beginning. There were also the disrupted starving of families, the unrecorded suicides, unofficial lynching, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions who died unnoticed in the papal crusades against heretical groups. And there were late Renaissance witch hunts which had no formal connection with the Inquisition, but certainly took their impetus from it. The chronicler of Treves, France, reported that in the year 1586, the entire female population of two villages, bar two women, were wiped out by the Inquisitors. Two other villages were destroyed completely and erased from the map. Germany in 1590 was almost entirely occupied with building fires to burn witches, and Switzerland had been compelled to wipe out many of her villages because of the witches. This also happened in France, Italy, and England, all of Christian Europe. A visitor to Wolfenbüttel in 1590 said there were so many stakes in the ground for the burning of the witches that the place resembled a small forest. The executioner in Silesia invented an oven in which over nine years he had roasted 10,000 people, including children two to four years old. At the same time as the church was taking power, so too was the medical profession. In the 13th century, sparked by contact with the Arab world, there was a revival in learning and medical schools appeared in universities. Universities were close to women. The church imposed strict rules over the new university-trained physicians. They were not allowed to practice without calling a priest to aid and advise them or to treat a patient who refused confession. Along with the church, the male medical profession was actively engaged in getting rid of female healers. First they worked to eradicate the literate woman healers with whom they competed for urban clientele. Then together with the church, removed the peasant woman healers. The doctors were often there as a medical expert to make judgments about whether certain women were witches. The church completely legitimized doctors' professionalism by saying non-professional healing, non-doctors, was equivalent to hearsay. If a woman dare to cure without having studied, she is a witch and must die. This also provided a handy excuse for doctors' failings in everyday practice. Anything he couldn't cure was obviously the result of sorcery. The medicine that the university-trained doctors were using was far less successful than the herbalism of the wise woman healers. Bleeding was common practice, leeches were used and was treatment for a toothache, touching a needle to a caterpillar and then the tooth. The treatment for leprosy was a broth made of the flesh of a black snake caught in a dry land among stones. The witches were the ones who had developed extensive knowledge of herbs and anatomy. In fact, in 1527, Paracelsus, the father of modern medicine, burned his text on pharmaceutical, confessing that he had learned all he knew from a sorceress. The disappearance of the midwives in the 17th and 18th century created an inroad for the non-professional male practitioner. 
the barber surgeons. They led the way in England claiming technical superiority over midwives on the basis of their use of obstetric forceps, which were legally classified as a surgical instrument and women were legally barred from surgical practice. This changed the neighbourly midwifery service into a lucrative business and was taken over by the physicians in the 18th century. A similar story happened worldwide and mostly remains the same. Some countries have midwives providing a lot of maternity care such as the Netherlands and Scandinavia, but in others such as parts of the USA and Canada, midwifery has been and remains illegal. Medieval Christianity detested midwives for their connection with the pagan matriarchy and goddess worship. Churchmen viewed them as enemies of the Catholic faith. They said that midwives offered the babies to the service of the devil. The real reason was that midwives could help women control their fate. They taught birth control and procured abortions. Pagan women had considerable knowledge of such matters. It was woman's own business and not subject to male authority. The church, however, forbade midwives to assist women in preventing conception, relieving them of unwanted pregnancy or easing their birth pains. In 1591, Euphame McAline, a Scottish noblewoman, was burned alive for asking a midwife for herbs to ease her labour pains. Witches were accused of every conceivable sexual crime against men. Quite simply, they were accused of female sexuality. They thought that a woman's power was ultimately derived from her sexuality. Women were associated with sex and all pleasure in sex was condemned. There were stories of witches copulating with the devil then infecting men. Lust in either man or wife was blamed on the woman. Witches were accused of making men impotent and making their penises disappear. Witches were also accused of being organised. They met locally in small groups and gatherings and traded herbal law and news. They also came together in crowds on festival days to mark the seasonal changes that had previously been occasions of pagan worship. Many of the herbal remedies developed by the witches and wise woman healers still have a place in modern pharmacology. The healers used trial and error and cause and effect in their healing, an approach that threatened the church's desire for folk to have a passive faith. They used their senses rather than a blind faith, while the church was profoundly distrustful of the senses and completely negating of natural laws that governed physical phenomena. The church believed that the devil resided in and presided over the senses. He was color, smell, sound, and flavours, they were the devil's playground and the way he lured man away from faith. Witches were accused of having magical powers, affecting health, of harming and healing, possessing and using medical skills. Same thing happens today. They were accused of giving contraceptive aid and of performing abortions. After the witches were all dead and the peasants were left with no healers, they came in scores, sick to the church, and were told, you have sinned and God is afflicting you. The church was not against medical care. In fact, the upper class had its physicians, who were men. It was the woman healers of the peasants that they were against. 
They saw their attack on the peasant healers as an attack on magic, not medicine. They believed that the woman healers used the power of the devil, the dark, to help themselves and others. Magic charms were actually thought by the church to be as effective as praying, but the church controlled prayer and not the magic charms and incantations. Their fear was that the peasants would be less dependent on God and the church if they could heal themselves and therefore would be out of their control. At a witch trial in 1593, the investigating jailer, himself a married man, discovered for the first time a clitoris. He identified it as the devil's teat, sure proof of the witch's guilt. He identified the discovery as a little lump of flesh in a manner sticking out as if it were a teat, to the length of half an inch. Not keen to reveal it to others due to its closeness to a secret place that was not decent to be seen, he was going to keep it to himself, but in the end decided not to, and in showing his discovery to the bystanders found that no one else had ever seen such a thing. The witch was convicted. The church taught that in intercourse the man deposited in the female a homunculus or little person, complete with soul, which was simply housed in the womb for nine months, without acquiring any attributes of the mother. The homunculus was not safe until it reached the hand of man again, when the priest baptized it, ensuring salvation of its immortal soul. Some medieval religious thinkers thought that upon resurrection, all human beings would be reborn as men. The patriarchal cultures insisted on man's control over women's bodies. Wives were not to initiate sexual relations, but they were never to deny their husbands. The Catholic Church laid down the law that no wife could accuse her husband of rape, even if he forced her with accompanying brutality. Sexual release was his conjugal right, not hers. The churchmen saw birth control as working against God's will, and this contributed to the witch hunt of midwives because they passed on this knowledge. The church professed that the only purpose of marital sex was conception, and that if the woman received too much pleasure, she would not be able to conceive. Birth control or conception control was historically based around the needs of the mother and her children. The natural mammalian system of birth control practiced by animals and primitive people is such that the female refuses sexual relations during pregnancy and lactation and in a period lasting from two to six years. This is still practiced in some of the world, Hunza, Semai of Malaya. Sexual intercourse takes place only when the female is receptive, when she is occupied with caring for her young, always her first priority, the female shows no sexual interest in the male, driving him away with bare teeth if necessary. In matriarchal societies, it was unthinkable that male sexuality should take precedence over the needs of mothers and their children. The patriarchy everywhere thought to change this through a religion. Women were to serve men's sexual urges, as well as be blamed for them, even when preoccupied with mothering. This was the meaning of God's announcement to Eve. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be subject to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The sorrow meant labor pains. 
and the harried life of a mother with children too close together and the illnesses and injuries caused by spreading a mother too thin. Women were taught that their children belonged not to them but to God. This eroded the instinctual, maternal possessiveness that best fosters good childcare and mothers often left their unwanted babies in God's care. With so many unwanted children, there was the advent of foundling hospitals where the nurses, nicknamed killing nurses, were expected to do the state's dirty work and make sure the unwanted children did not survive long. The first foundling hospital in London admitted 15,000 infants in four years, between 1756 and 60. In Europe, the death rate for infants in foundling hospitals was 18 to 90% in the first year of life. Female sexuality was feared, and so the anemone was kept in the dark. Growing girls and boys were kept ignorant of female sexuality. Even physicians came to believe that no clitoris would be found on a virtuous woman. From medieval times onwards, virtuous women would never show themselves naked to any man, even their husband, so it is no surprise that men would remain ignorant of the female anatomy. The church viewed masturbation as a grave moral disorder. In the 19th century, male circumcision was used to prevent masturbation. For girls at that time, masturbation was treated as a medical problem. The treatment was cautery, burning off or amputation of the clitoris, sewing the vulva together to keep the clitoris out of reach, miniature chastity belts, even removal of the ovaries. The last recorded clitoridectomy for curing masturbation in the USA was in 1948 on a five-year-old girl. Male circumcision continues today, but without the excuse to cure masturbation. The medical system that developed over the centuries came from a belief that the body was made of its part, not the sum of its part, but separate unrelated systems. The male body was seen as the norm and subsequently the female was the abnormal. She was subject to unpredictable and rampaging hormones, female disorders that defied masculine experience. As the female experience was not understood and even negated, menstrual, sexual and birth disorders and problems developed. Such diagnosis as hysteria developed from the idea that the womb would mobilize itself and travel around the body causing havoc wherever it stopped, for example the brain. The patriarchy brought fear and loathing to a woman's monthly cycle and she was rendered unclean and taboo. The ancients had held quite the opposite view. Women were known to be most in their feminine power when they bled. They would retreat together during that time to nurture each other, to dream, to rest and to return with new visions for the community. What was once celebrated and honoured time, role and responsibility became a way to collective and self-loathing. The sexual stages of a woman's life, menarche, menstruation, birth, mothering and menopause have all basically been relegated to medicine and made into disorders that need fixing. Irregular menstrual cycles are treated as a disorder and many young women are prescribed the oral contraceptive pill to regulate their cycles. Natural birth is not trusted, reputed to be dangerous, and caesarean section occurs in one-third of birth in some cities and more in others. 
Menopause is now a condition rather than to be honored and can be avoided. It is seen as a dangerous, unwelcome series of symptoms, not the realm of the highly valued wise woman from our her story. Birth practices truly reflect the attitudes of the culture and have over centuries been quite the meaning of women and completely disrespectful of both mothers in labor and the process of birth. In the 1970s, it was not uncommon to see women tranquilized against their wishes, confined to narrow high beds and tables, handcuffed in stirrups, and their babies taken away from them once they were born. Today in the modern world, birth occurs mostly in hospital under the care of professionals. There are strict rules of what constitutes normal and abnormal. A doctor is usually in charge of the case and it is managed according to risk. The individuals in charge are the ones who command the technology. And this happens in the hospital labor ward where the laboring woman is transformed into a patient and where she is under a doctor. In the very best scenario that money can buy, women are paralyzed, connected to machines and their vital signs, contractions, and the baby's heartbeat are monitored from a desk down the hall, or the process of labor and birth is bypassed by an elective cesarean section performed. Birth in our modern cultures is treated as a medical event with a homogenization of its practices, motivated by a desire to control the birth process and have it best fit the hospital system set up to deal with it. There is a lack of time for and trust in a woman's individual way with her body and giving birth. There is a lack of understanding and respect for woman's personal journey through pregnancy and birth and no acknowledgement of the sexuality of birth. Episiotomy, the cutting of the vagina to speed up the birth of the baby, is unnecessarily done in most, if not all cases, with little consideration for the far-reaching effects it can have on a woman's life. Different forms of female genital mutilation occur in countries around the world. The vast majority occurs in Africa, 85%. The societies that practice female genital mutilation are strongly patriarchal. In many of the societies, an important reason is given for it. It is the belief that it reduces a woman's desire for sex, therefore reducing the chance for sex outside the marriage. The woman is sewn up and opened only for her husband. The honor of the whole family depends on the woman being faithful. It is extremely difficult for an unmutilated woman to marry in these cultures. She is considered unclean. The last few hundred years of her story saw the Industrial Revolution and onto a scientific and technological revolution. Woman's position in society has improved, even being given to vote in the last hundred years. With the rise of feminism came the increased opportunities and possibilities for women. In many parts of the world, conditions are the best they've been for many thousands of years. In others, they are worse. Today, we can gather together without fear of being seen doing so and being caught and burned alive. The predicament for our sisters in less fortunate situations is world news and their rights are something many of us fight for. The edict or orders by the church that established the Inquisition have never been revoked. 
they are officially still part of the Catholic faith and were used as justification for certain practices as recently as 1969. This belief in the church's doctrine is still a moral offence and punishable as would be murder and robbery. How do you feel when you hear all of this? When I first heard this, I felt angry. Learning this her story reveals a wound and uncovers suppressed pain and fear. The wound reveals the cure. Individual women and men may feel this wounding personally. It may explain underlying fears they have, even nightmares, and extreme reactions to certain situations. For example, one may feel rage at something that triggers these memories, such as inequities between women and men. We will all feel the wounding collectively as the negative energy field of accumulated pain suffered by women through the ages. This her story is our heritage and the memories are laid down in our very DNA. This has and does affect us all. It is important to acknowledge and feel our feelings but not to get stuck in them, rather observe them and release attachment to them. You can't heal what you can't feel. Let it be grist for your mill, food for your thought, compost for your gardens. As they say, those who cannot remember their history are condemned to repeat it. Using the wisdom inherent in the cycles, we can view this her story as the story of humanity's developing and evolving relationship with the feminine principle. The lunation cycle, the moon phases, is a way of seeing the full and recurring cycle of something, the birth, death and rebirth as per the phases of the moon. This lunation cycle of humanity's developing and evolving relationship with the feminine principle began at the end of the last ice age, the new moon, with the matriarchal cultures growing and building, waxing, until its full expression of the full moon at around 9000 BC, with the creation of permanent villages and agriculture. This led on to the decline, the waning, from around 3000 BC with the shift to the patriarchal culture and the move through the dark phase, the dark of the moon, that this her story speaks of, and to now, a time for rebirth, the new moon again. We see the effects of our dark her story most blatantly in our humanity's most disrespectful relationship with the earth and the rape and pillage of our mother earth and in the willingness of some to see war as the answer in conflict. And the times, they are changing. People recycle now and care about the environment. Alternative health care is a big part of many people's lives. Midwives are around and the wisdom and practices from traditional cultures are valued. When confronted with war, peace is the chosen option for the majority of people. We are moving from the dark phase of the lunation cycle to the new moon phase, time of new beginning, referred to astrologically as the age of Aquarius, a time when old ways are challenged and new ideas and ways come into the new age, and evolution works in the shape of the spiral, so that the point of change to newness, the previous cycle's wisdom is incorporated in the new cycle. We see this through many people in modern Western civilizations reconnecting with the feminine principle. The healing is taking place and you are part of it. Blessed be and blessed do.
I hope you enjoyed this story. Even though it's been a long episode, this is a story so beautifully written and it's called The Woman Festo. It is quite something. But we are here now to make all the changes, to stand up, to not repeat history. And I look forward to hearing some of your comments. Share it with all your sisters, share it on your socials. The publication is free and intended to educate those around us and to lean into the different aspects a little more to reclaim the mysteries of the menstrual cycles, the spinning wheel of life. And I will love you and leave you with that. Blessed be.